This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, we explore the origins of violence in Colombia, both old and new. But first, Megan Eckhamel is here with this week's review of news from around Latin America. U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry used an annual forum on Latin America at the State Department as a platform to take a swipe at Venezuela this week. He said corruption and high crime rates in Venezuela were stoking unrest. And the people in the streets have legitimate grievances that deserve to be addressed. And the serious and worsening economic and social challenges in Venezuela can only be resolved with the input of those people. Kerry said the U.S. supports the ongoing talks between the Venezuelan government and the country's protest movement. Student groups and opposition parties have held almost daily protests in Venezuela since February. Kerry's remarks came at the 44th Annual Conference of the Americas, organized by the America Society Council of the Americas. A new Human Rights Watch report accuses security forces in Venezuela of using excessive force on street protesters. The report says almost all victims were arrested and subjected to physical and psychological abuse. In some instances, security forces threatened rape and execution. The report is based on more than 90 interviews of victims, their relatives, and their lawyers. The report documents 10 cases of torture and 97 investigations into police and military abuses. The Venezuelan government has not responded to the report. A campaign strategist for Colombian President Juan Manuel Santos has resigned. Juan Jose Rendon's exit comes after allegations that gang leader Javier Antonio Calle Serna paid him as part of the negotiated surrender of Calle Serna and his associates to authorities. Calle Serna says he paid Rendon $12 million to help negotiate favorable surrender terms. Rendon denies getting paid, but he did relay the gang leader's offer of surrender to authorities. President Santos is running for re-election with a national vote set for later this month. Colombia's federal prosecutor will send investigators to speak to Calle Serna about the allegations. Calle Serna is in New York City facing U.S. drug trafficking charges. Calle Serna was one of the leaders of the Rastrojos gang, one of the most powerful gangs in Colombia. We'll have more on the Rastrojos gang later in this program. Brazilian women are taking punishments for domestic abuse into their own hands in one slum, Menino Chorao, or Crybaby Boy, in Campinas, Brazil. Maria de Sousa, who goes by the name Dona Carmen, has invented what she calls the punishment for men who hurt their wives. The punishment initially lasts for 15 days. It bars husbands from drinking at the local bar and playing soccer in the local field. Wives also refuse to have sex during the punishment period. Women and men in the slum say the punishment works. 
Brazil first introduced a stronger domestic violence law in 2006. Before that, offenders were able to get off with small fines or by donating food baskets to local charities. For Latin Pulse, I'm Megan Eckhamel. Thanks, Megan. Colombia's government is now using two military brigades to patrol the streets of Buenaventura in an attempt to keep the peace. That's in addition to the city's police force and reinforcements from the national police. Buenaventura is Colombia's busiest port, but also its most dangerous city. Buenaventura sits on the country's Pacific coast in the Valle de Cauca, or Cauca Valley. The city is home to roughly 370,000 residents. It's also home for two criminal gangs that compete for control. A recent report from Human Rights Watch says violence bred by the gangs forced out as many as 13,000 of Buenaventura's residents last year. Rachel Bay takes a close look at the violence in Buenaventura. And a note of warning, her report carries graphic descriptions of extreme violence, which may be too much for some listeners. Tourism agencies refer to Buenaventura as a paradise. The Pacific Ocean lies to the west, and the city is surrounded by rainforest and mangrove swamps. But this paradise had 187 reported homicides last year, in addition to what Human Rights Watch's Max Schoening says were the countless murders that went unreported. The number of homicides does not include disappearance cases, uh, cases in which people are abducted, killed, and their remains are hidden. Schoening says more than 150 people were reported missing in the last four years, twice as many as in any other Colombian city. The number of reported disappearances is just a small fraction of the actual number of cases of people who have been uh, abducted and disappeared, given that in many, if not most of the cases, victims' family members do not report the crimes out of fear of reprisals. Human Rights Watch believes two criminal groups are behind the bulk of the violence, Los Urabeños and Los Rastrojos, also known as La Empresa, or The Company. Perhaps worse than the number of dead and missing is the way many residents are killed. The groups maintain what are known as casas de pique, or chop-up houses, where they dismember their victims, often while they are still alive. I spoke with residents and witnesses who said they heard the screams of people as they were being dismembered alive in in these casas de pique, chop-up houses, in their neighborhoods. Schoening explains that the city is divided by invisible borders between neighborhoods. Cross one of these invisible boundaries and you could end up in a casa de pique. Adam Isaacson, who studies regional security policy at the Washington office on Latin America, says these chop-up houses are a relatively new addition to the violence that has ruled the city for more than a decade. It, it sounds utterly psychotic, like you have a city full of serial killers. Isaacson explains that the violence wreaking havoc in Buenaventura has changed shape in the last 15 years. In recent years, the left-wing guerrilla groups have mostly left, and the violence is no longer the left-versus-right battle it once was. The new groups, the Urbanos and the Empresa, descend from militia groups formed by narcotics traffickers. Colombia tried to demobilize these paramilitary groups in the mid-2000s, but new groups formed. The city, with its hard-to-patrol swamps and access to the Pacific Ocean, became prime territory for the drug trade. And they're fighting just a block-by-block battle for control of the city and its drug routes. On the ground, it often looks like just um, the same sort of urban gang conflict that you see <clears throat> in Mexico, Central America, Medellin. The groups don't align with any specific politics or ideology. 
They are motivated by money, plain and simple. According to journalist James Bargent, who is based in Medellin, the Urabeños is the city's and the country's premier criminal organization at the moment. But there is a fine line between the Urabeños and the Empresa. Bargent explains that both groups operate like franchises, with local leaders based in Buenaventura and foot soldiers recruited from among local residents. So when the Urabeños moved in and they were winning at the start, there was a mass defection from La Empresa. There's no politics here, there's no ideology here, they, they just work for whoever pays. Buenaventura has an unemployment rate of roughly 40%, four times the national rate, and 80% of residents live in poverty. So it's easy to see how the promise of a little pay pulls residents into this drug war. Isaacson says the violence is a way for the groups to exert control over the city. Clearly what is happening is, uh, in Spanish, la ley del, del más loco. No, the, whoever seems the, to be the most ruthless and craziest and able to clear all his enemies out of a neighborhood um, tends to win. And it has escalated to the point where you have things like these Casas de Pique, where um, they're trying to send the message from, you know, neighbors, the enti entire neighborhoods hearing screams in the night, and notably the authorities never coming, um, in order to show the control they have. Bargent says that women often receive particularly brutal treatment, since they are often the most willing to stand up and defend their families. Buenaventura has uh, had a reputation for quite some time for femicides. Um, it's not just the number, it's the brutality of them. I mean, they're really, really horrific. There's one case where they cut some woman's buttocks off and played football with them. There's been women found with, like, objects shoved into their vaginas. Isaacson says the use of violence as a terror tactic is a double-edged sword. Yes, the violence has allowed the groups to gain control, but it has also attracted the attention of the international community, like with Human Rights Watch's latest report. Schoening explains that the report stirred the Colombian government to action. After we released the report, uh, the Attorney General of Colombia announced uh, nine measures to, to, to bolster the justice system in Buenaventura, including doubling the staff of, the, of prosecutors and criminal investigators in Buenaventura and establishing a strong witness protection program. In March, the Colombian government also sent more than 700 police and military forces from other parts of the country into Buenaventura to patrol the streets. Some news reports suggest that this effort has initially slowed the violence. But Isaacson doubts the effects will be long-lasting. They're standing there on the street corners in some of the tougher neighborhoods. There are a lot more roadblocks and checkpoints. Um, whether there's actual response times, if, if anybody dares to denounce a Casa de Pique or something similar going on, uh, I don't know. Um, and they end up being sort of like scarecrows. There will be no crimes committed within their line of sight, but uh, you know, once they're gone, who knows what happens. Isaacson suggests that a more effective approach might be to get rid of many of the current city police force. He says the existing Buenaventura police have not responded effectively to the violence, and that as a result, Residents don't trust them. You need more judges to, and, and prosecutors to really get to the bottom of this, and not just arrest trigger pillars or, or hatchet men, but you want to get at who's ordering this and paying for this too, which means following the money and tracing the networks and doing some real detective work. Um, we don't see enough of that yet. A spokesperson for the Colombian government did not respond to requests for comment for this story. While the violence has been raging within the city, the municipal and national governments have been engaged in an effort to expand the city's port capacity, 
and to attract visitors to the area. The city wants to build a boardwalk, a malecón in Spanish, with restaurants, shopping, and hotels. Colombia is slated to join the new Trans-Pacific Partnership Trade Agreement, so it's important to the government that the country's most prominent port expand. Buenaventura Mayor Bartolo Valencia Ramos gave this explanation in a 2012 promotional video about the plans. El proyecto Malecón the Boardwalk Project is a strategic, very important project for the people of Buenaventura, the Cauca Valley, and Colombia. This is a time of urban renewal for the port city. Businesses of Buenaventura, of the Cauca Valley, and Colombia, we invite you to work together with us in a shared vision for the city. The plans stand to displace residents who have settled along the shore in temporary structures. These residents were initially displaced by violence in more rural areas of the municipality. They don't have formal land titles, but Bargen explains that some have lived there for 50 years. The government says that you know they're offering them improved housing facilities, which in some ways is true, but what they're doing is they're trying to move them to a new facility outside of town. Um, now all the people living in these communities, they basically live off the sea. They live off fishing and whatever they can sort of scrape a living from the sea. So they're not only moving them from their homes and communities that they built themselves, they're also um, separating them from their economic lifeblood. Buenaventura's port is also a major transportation hub for the region's drug trade, and as a result, one of the city's most violent areas. If you want to control like drug trafficking in Buenaventura, then you want to control basically the coastal areas where you can move your men and your arms in and you've got access to the waterways where the drugs go out. Bargent explains that the violence within the city and near the port is encouraging residents to abandon their homes, which helps with the development efforts. Many residents think that's not a coincidence. They believe that the Urabeños and the Empresa have ties to the government officials and private companies pushing the port expansion efforts. Despite those feelings, there is no proof of such complicity. Now, because of it, this is so intrinsically linked, and because in Colombia, you know, paramilitarism and criminality and business have often gone hand in hand, the people in these areas do believe that they're very, very closely linked. They believe basically the government is sending in these armed groups and the companies sending in these armed groups to clear them out. Now, I, I don't think that's the case. I'd like to make that clear before I stumble into a massive libel. Um, but there is a remarkable, there is a lot of overlap between what's going on with the port expansion and what's going on with the conflict. The expansion efforts are stalled in a series of legal battles over who has rights to the land. But the plans are scheduled to be completed next year. In the meantime, cocaine traffickers continue to use Buenaventura's port, a practice that experts doubt will end anytime soon. For Latin Pulse, I'm Rachel Bay. Coming up, as Colombia's civil war turns 50, we look at the origins of the conflict. Stay with us. This planet we call Earth, abundant with new food, new cures, new life. An amazing place. Please don't let it vanish without a trace. Call for your free World Wildlife Fund Action Kit with 10 simple things you can do to help leave our children a living planet. Call 1-800-C-A-L-L-W-W-F. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Currently, Colombia's civil war is the oldest ongoing guerrilla conflict in the world. This month, that conflict turns 50 years old. P. 
Peace negotiations between the government and guerrilla forces are underway in Cuba and have yielded some preliminary results, although no definitive peace. We asked Bruce Bagley at the University of Miami to help us trace the origins of the conflict and take us back to the beginning of the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, the FARC. Bagley's latest book is Paramilitary Demobilization in Colombia, Between Hopes and Skepticism. Here are excerpts from our long-distance phone conversation. The roots of this conflict actually go back to the agrarian fires in Colombia during the 1930s, when agrarian unrest led to a series of land invasions in um, the uh, eastern parts of the country, particularly around Bogota, uh, in the, the Department of Cundinamarca, and produced um, new legislation that was uh, seeking to quiet those agrarian fires and to give at least some purchase on the land to the peasantry. Over the 1930s and into the 1940s, Colombia basically fell apart. Um, it entered into a period of uh, rising levels of conflict between liberals and conservatives, and we saw the assassination of Jorge Eliezer Gaitan in 1948 and the outbreak of the violence in Colombia in 1948. Uh, April 19, 1948, that led to a decade-long internal or civil war in Colombia between liberals and conservatives, in which uh, conservatively some 300,000 Colombians were killed in partisan internecine conflict. This was resolved at least partially with the creation of the National Front in 1958. During that period, from the agrarian fires to the creation of the National Front, Liberals were persecuted, particularly in the 1940s, by conservatives um, who took over the presidency. And that persecution of Liberal Party members led to an alliance between liberals who fled into the countryside and the Communist Party of Colombia. They established, if you like, redoubts or uh, strong points in various parts of the Colombian countryside. They were known as independent red republics, repúblicas independientes, and those independent red republics brought together liberals and conservatives. When the National Front arrangement in 1958 finally resolved the decade-long internal conflict that had taken so many lives in Colombia, it was done between liberal and conservative party elites who decided that they um, should agree among themselves to a kind of controlled political experiment um, that alternated political power between liberals and conservatives, uh, forced parity at all levels of the government so that there were equal numbers of liberals and conservatives. That agreement allowed the liberals and the conservatives to get back together, but they excluded um, the former liberal allies in the countryside, the, the Communist Party of Colombia, the PCC. That exclusion left the communists and all other groups outside of the political system. Between 1958 and 1964, we saw growing discontent, particularly among those elements that were excluded, and it led in 1964, six years after the creation of the National Front, to the formal establishment of the FARC guerrillas, the Colombian Revolutionary Armed Forces, and another group called the Ejército de Liberación Nacional, or the uh, Colombian Liberation, the National Liberation Army, ELN. Those two groups were both founded in 1964, and both of them continue to operate in Colombia um, today. 
That is 50 years after uh, the creation of these guerrilla organizations. Colombia is still confronted with ongoing internal conflict and guerrilla warfare against the government of the, uh, uh, and the state. Some people trace the beginning of this war, the armed part of this war in 1964, to something called Plan Lazo. Can you tell us about that and what the role of the United States was in that particular operation? Primarily in 1957 and beyond, the United States, which had had a presence in Colombia um, throughout the 1950s, in conjunction with the Colombian military, established a program called Plan Lazo, um, which was designed to extirpate or eliminate these communist guerrilla redoubts in the countryside and to help end the guerrilla violence that was taking place um, in, in various parts of the country supported by radical liberals and, uh, uh, and communists. Plan Lasso had the support of the CIA and, by the way, of the United States military, and it was designed to pacify the Colombian countryside. With the creation of the National Front in 1958, and the pact between the liberals and the conservatives that led to a restoration of civilian government and the replacement of the Rojas Pinilla dictatorship, which had dominated the country between uh, 50, 1953 and 1957, you get a uh, situation in which U.S. government advisors counsel the Colombian government that in order to pacify the countryside, um, the National Front was not enough. They had to target. Um, these communist guerrilla redoubts in the countryside, and to take the fight to them. They began to do so um, through U.S. training, um, the provision of U.S. equipment, um, with the assistance of U.S. advisors, uh, and mounted an entire program called Plan Lasso that was designed specifically to create the conditions um, that would allow the National Front government in 1958 and beyond to flourish in the wake of the Rojas Pinilla dictatorship. That program, which lasted basically from 57, 58 through 1962, was relatively successful. Um, the advisors from the United States said it's not enough to have a national level reconciliation between liberals and conservative elites. You need programs that are targeted at um, the Colombian peasantry in the more remote areas of the countryside. Um, one of the programs that they suggested that was adopted was a program called uh, Acción Comunal, or Community Action, which organized local groups into um, civic action committees um, in, intended to generate volunteer labor and uh, build infrastructure like uh, local roads and uh, sewage systems to um, outlying veredas uh, to begin to establish electrical linkages to the larger network in Colombia. Um, Plan Lasso ends in, in 1962 after an agrarian re a new agrarian reform is adopted, a new agrarian reform law is adopted in 1961, <laughs> and between the end of Plan Lasso, the formal ending of Plan Lasso, and 1964, we see the beginnings of the resurgence, which ultimately leads right. Um, to the creation of the FARC and the ELN. This creation of the FARC and the ELN was in part spurred by the fact that the government of Colombia, the conservative government of Colombia that took over from the first liberal government, the conservative government in 1962 decided to launch an all-out assault against uh, 
the major communist uh, stronghold in the central Cordillera of Colombia, particularly places like Marquetalia, Rio Chiquito, and others in, in the central part of the country up in the mountains. And that all-out assault, which was completed in 1964, displaced these traditional strongholds of the Communist Party, where liberals had taken refuge during the violencia in order to escape persecution from the conservatives and forced them into marches out of their areas of control into the eastern plains of Colombia, known as the Llanos Orientales. So Plan Lasso ends up as a program of military assault by the Colombian government in 1964 against the Communist Party uh, stronghold and forces the FARC organization to pack up its old people, its kids, its goats, its chickens, and everything else, and they march out into the eastern plains, east towards uh, Brazil, and establish themselves in colonization efforts that were extremely difficult for the government to get to and that have remained largely in FARC hands from 1964 to the present. Some people mark this um, conflict starting with a battle in, in Marcatelia in 1964. Do you agree with that? Well, I think that that was the culminating battle. It is the one that forced um, the FARC into the forced marches. Uh, the Colombian government used uh, airplanes and strafing, napalm, which had been provided by the United States government to them, and other modern, if you like, warfare techniques against a peasant population that had established itself in the Central Cordillera. When they were dislodged, when they were displaced, from their strongholds in those areas, which they had held for uh, decades, actually generations, um, you get the formal declaration of the FARC. So it is that battle that is seen by the FARC as the trigger or the precipitating event that leads to their declaration of the revolutionary armed forces and the conduct of their revolutionary war against the Colombian state. In your mind, what responsibility does the U.S. hold in the beginning and in, in how this war started? Well, I think that the United States, you know, uh, acceded to demands by the Colombian government to provide um, CIA assistance and military support. Um, if you recall, this period of the nineteen of the late 1950s was uh, at a high point in the Cold War. The United States felt that the most important thing for the United States government to do in the wake of World War II and throughout the 1950s was guarantee that the Soviet Union and that the Russians uh, specifically <laughs> did not advance the causes of communism in Latin America. There was considerable concern about rising levels of communist activity in labor unions among teachers and certainly uh, the communist ideology, Moscow Line, inspired the, the FARC guerrillas. They were assisted by the, the Communist Party of Colombia, and they received aid from, um, from, from Moscow in a variety of different forms. So the United States saw Colombia as a key point in the struggle against uh, expansionary communism on a global scale and felt that supporting the Colombian government was essential. Um, frankly, they converted uh, what was going on in Colombia, which was a peasant struggle, for land and, and other things, into an ideological struggle. They, in my opinion, propelled 
the FARC into their radical stance. Uh, at the same time, uh, the Castro Revolution in Cuba had occurred in 1959, and the Ejército de Liberación Nacional, the ELN, uh, was receiving direct support from the Cuban government. So the U.S. saw Colombia as a, uh, a choke point in many senses, uh, a key area where they felt, uh, where U.S. authorities felt it was necessary to push back against communist expansionism um, in Latin America. Thank you so much. Bruce Bagley of the University of Miami and the author of Paramilitary Demobilization in Colombia Between Hope and Skepticism, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Estimates vary on the numbers of people killed and wounded during Colombia's long civil war. Conservative estimates put the number at 50,000. Other estimates say it could be four times that number. The United Nations says the conflict has also displaced at least three million people who have become internal refugees. And now a programming note. Latin Pulse will be back at its regular time next week, premiering on Friday, May 16th. This program is available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and MusicaQ. You can also find us in the Brazilian online game, Minimundos. If you'd like to comment on this program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, associate producer Megan Eckhamel, reporter Rachel Bay, and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchen nosotros, gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University School of Communication and with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music by Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2014, Las Rocas Productions. <laughs>